You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's April 9th. Public trust in the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention fell by about 10% from May to October 2020, a critical period of the COVID-19 pandemic. That's according to new RAND survey data. In contrast, the survey showed that public trust in the Postal Service and FEMA increased significantly in that same time frame, despite those agencies facing their own challenges. Non-Hispanic white respondents and Hispanic respondents reported the most significant declines in trust in the CDC, while changes in trust among non-Hispanic black respondents or those who identified other as their race were not statistically significant. The drop in trust in the CDC was especially significant among people who intended to vote for a candidate other than Joe Biden in the 2020 presidential election or did not intend to vote at all. This suggests that views of the CDC are now strongly politicized, and the Biden administration may now face an uphill battle in rebuilding trust in the CDC as the vaccine rollout continues. What might explain this decline in trust? Well, public suspicions of scientific experts and levels of distrust of government institutions are increasing for a variety of reasons, including a blurring of the line between fact and opinion in the U.S., part of a phenomenon we call truth decay. Access to more sources of conflicting information is also a factor. Key to rebuilding trust in the CDC, RAND researchers say, is identifying who Americans view as trusted messengers of information about vaccines and public health policies. It's also important to help the public understand the scientific rationale for policy changes and guidance aimed at preventing the spread of the virus. Terrorism and ideologically inspired violence represent a persistent, serious threat to national security. Just three months ago, Americans watched this threat become a reality in the deadly attacks on the U.S. Capitol. Why do individuals join extremist organizations? How do they become radicalized? And what could lead them to eventually leave such groups? To help answer these questions, RAND researchers interviewed former extremists and their family members, representing 32 unique stories of 24 white supremacists and 8 Islamic extremists. Here are some of the key takeaways. First, negative life events, such as abuse, trauma, family problems, or bullying, may be part of radicalization. But these events are never the sole cause. Second, although not every person the researchers spoke to discussed mental health problems, those who did mentioned lack of treatment options that were accessible or affordable. Third, when recruiting new members, radical groups prey on the psychological vulnerabilities of their targets. For example, these groups use cognitive strategies to reinforce hatred toward people outside the group. Fourth, and finally, media literacy and access to diverse sources of information appear to be critical for de-radicalization. And having experiences with diversity could help too— Exposing radicalized individuals to people outside the group who exhibit kindness and generosity have shown positive effects. 
The insights gleaned from these interviews helped brand researchers develop recommendations to prevent radicalization and promote de-radicalization. They also emphasize the importance of incorporating the voices of individuals who have personal experience with radical ideology into U.S. efforts to counter violent extremism. You can find the full report on RAND.org. With school closures and the shift to remote learning, COVID-19 has led to major disruptions in the way that teachers educate students with disabilities. To learn more about the experiences of educators and students during this challenging time, RAND surveyed nearly 1,600 teachers across the U.S. About two in five respondents said that their schools offered alternative instructional arrangements for students with disabilities. Such arrangements were less common in schools serving more students of color and more students experiencing poverty. There are steps that schools, districts, and state leaders can take to help ensure that the needs of students with disabilities are being met. For instance, districts can prioritize and expand opportunities for in-person learning for these students, including summer, after-school, and extended school year programs. Districts could also invest in training and preparation to help all teachers more effectively educate students with disabilities. Russia relies heavily on private security contractors, mercenaries, to threaten its competitors' interests, including those of the United States. But are the Kremlin's so-called little green men really a group of elite, stealthy, gray zone warriors? Or are they actually little green vulnerabilities? According to RAND experts, Russia's reliance on mercenaries reveals inherent weaknesses. In fact, RAND research has shown that while Russia's military ground forces are locally dominant, it has strictly limited ability to project that ground power beyond its own borders. Russian mercenaries have their own limitations and vulnerabilities, too. For one, they're often unreliable. It's not clear that all or even most of Russia's mercenary forces are all well-trained and experienced soldiers. And in at least a few cases, their will to fight appeared to be poor. Russian mercenaries have also repeatedly shown that they will choose self-interest over state interests. These are weaknesses that the U.S. could exploit. By studying these vulnerabilities further, Washington could discover new opportunities to thwart Moscow's efforts to undermine Western democracy. The gas tax is no longer sufficient to pay for America's roads and bridges. The tax hasn't been raised since 1993, so it hasn't kept up with inflation. Plus, cars are becoming more and more fuel-efficient, meaning that your gas consumption may no longer accurately reflect how much you drive. What if the gas tax was replaced by a Federal Vehicle Miles Traveled Fee, or VMT, which charges drivers based on how far they drive? Like any new tax, a VMT would be unpopular. According to RAND's Lisa Ekela and Laura Patton, there would be three main obstacles. Privacy concerns, the fear of double taxation while transitioning from a gas tax to a VMT fee, and political will. But these obstacles can all be overcome. Privacy concerns could be addressed by allowing drivers to choose how they share their data. A privacy watchdog could also be part of the program. To prevent double taxation, drivers could receive credit for any fuel tax they pay on top of the VMT fee. And as for political will, 
The VMT fee is an area where bipartisan support may be possible. A VMT fee would fulfill the conservative principle of people paying directly for the services they use, as well as the liberal principle of tax burdens being shared more equitably, because Americans who drive highly efficient cars tend to be more affluent. So, as Congress looks for ways to fund investments in U.S. infrastructure, will policymakers propose a VMT fee as a potential solution? Time will tell. Rand is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. We'll see you next week.